The scrape of a chisel, the breaking of glass, the ticking of a bomb. History can be moved by the great and by the small. We are the Spy-Fi Guys, and this is Countdown to Valkyrie. Hello and welcome back to the Spy-Fi Guys. I'm Zach, and this is Christian. Hey, Wait, I thought we were talking about Tom Cruise this week. I am deceived. I know, I know. It's so crazy. We're doing something different this time. So what's happening is we were supposed to do the Tom Cruise movie Valkyrie. And in preparation for that, I read this book called Countdown to Valkyrie, The July Plot to Assassinate Hitler by Nigel Jones. And the book was had so much good content that I wanted to share with you and with our listeners that I was like, let's do this, what we're calling a microdot episode. Yeah, so, and if you don't know what a microdot is, well, you're listening to the wrong podcast. Just kidding, of course. So, <laughs> my dot is like a form of communication that the people, that spies used to use, and I guess, I think maybe some still do, where they shrink down a document or a message or something to basically the size of the period uh, in, in a sentence, and you hide it some in places, be it you know, in the stamp, in a stamp uh, of a postcard, or well, because it's so small, you can hide it almost anywhere. But we we don't have to look for this microdot. We're bringing it right to you with some extra history beyond the movie that I thought you would want to know. Uh, so shall we just jump right in? Yeah, let's do it. So the July plot that involved an attempt on Hitler's life, an attempt to overthrow the Nazi regime may have been the closest to actually killing Hitler, but it was not the first attempt, nor even the Hmm. first attempt made by other Germans. Oh, okay. So so Nigel talks about a couple of resistance movements against Nazi Germany, one of which was named the Kresaw Circle, led by Helmuth James Graf von Moltke. Excuse me. That's a gesundheit. Thanks, I know. The German (laughs) names are out of control. You think it's bad in the movie? It's ridiculous Uh. in the black. Which is why when we cover the movie, I'm not going to remember anyone's name. I'm just going to be like, oh, yeah, Tom Cruise did this and Bill Nye did that. I mean, yeah, you're not going to be able to tell them apart. The movie is like white guys as far as the eye can see. <laughs> but but anyway, uh, go on with you, yeah. So Moltke, he was a pacifist. He refused to even consider armed action against the Nazis, despite working as a legal advisor to the Wehrmacht or the German army. The Kresaw Circle was a, was a liberal, they, re, they refused to even consider killing Hitler, and their story ended when they were rounded up and executed in the fallout from the failure of Valkyrie. Yeah. So they may have been unwilling to use violence against the Nazis, but the Nazis were certainly willing to use violence against them. Mm. Another example of a similar thing is the White Rose, a group of university students who scattered leaflets calling for the Nazis to be removed from power, and they were beheaded for that crime. Oh, geez. So people think, we think we know the Nazis. We think we know how bad they are. They're really bad. Yeah, well, I mean... It's one thing to mistreat your enemies, but your own people like that... It goes to, and this is something that I developed from the movie a little bit as well, which is that in a totalitarian regime like Nazi Germany, even if you're on top, mm-hmm. it's no fun. No. It's just a yeah. terrible place to be. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, but those, those weren't really attempts on Hitler. Let's get into the okay. good stuff. 
So sure. Lieutenant Colonel Hans Oster, who was not in the movie, even mm -hmm. though he was sort of peripherally involved with Stauffenberg's plot, he mm -hmm. was the director of operations for the Abwehr, which is Germany's military intelligence unit. Huh. And he okay. came up with a plan that was called the Abwehr plot because it was done by a bunch of Abwehr people. He was active against the Nazis long before Tom Cruise's character named Klaus von Stauffenberg, who we'll be talking more about later. But Oster was active long before Stauffenberg was involved. He hated both the SS for killing a general he once served under and Hitler himself, whom he called the pig or Emil, which I Ooh. guess is like an insult. I don't, I don't, I don't okay. know what that means. I don't, mm. But oh, you Emil, I'll get you. So <laughs> the problem with this plot, among others, is that Oster was really bad at his intelligence job, what they call in the spy business OPSEC or operational security. Mm -hmm. So according to Nigel, he would meet contacts quite openly in cafes and restaurants and chat freely about their plans, no doubt to the education and delight of many listening ears. Ooh, that's terrible upset. It's like, what? It's like, what are you, what are you doing? He and his I mean, fellow conspirator were arrested in 1943, almost 10 years after he first decided to move against the Nazis. So that does come to one of my, like, the tropes in spy movies that I kind of hate is that they're just openly talking about stuff in like whatever cafe or coffee shop that they're in. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that in real life, something, when something like that happens, doesn't work out. I mean, yeah, it's bad like that it didn't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would have liked for Hitler to have been assassinated beforehand. Don't get me wrong, but yeah, that's just terrible. Opsec. <laughs> It, yeah, it's just like I don't I don't even understand what's going through his mind. How alone how he got his job as director of operations. Okay, so let me tell you a little bit about their plan though, because their plan is interesting, even though it didn't work. So Oster yeah. teamed up with General Ludwig Beck, who is played by Terence Stamp in the movie. Uh, yeah. So Beck at the time was chief of staff of the German army, aka the Wehrmacht, and he mm -hmm. stayed there between thirty five and thirty eight. So. Their plan wasn't to kill Hitler directly, but rather they were going to try to stop him and therefore stop World War II before it even began. Hmm. So the Seems way they like were... a good idea. Oh, sorry. I mean, sure. It, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's a great idea. And a lot of people foresaw World War II starting, mm -hmm. including these guys. I guess it was fairly obvious. But anyway, so step one of their plan was they reached out through envoys to Britain, to France, the United States. They tried to convince Britain and France to take a harder stance against Hitler when he was threatening places like Czechoslovakia. So that way, if Hitler decided to attack anyway, they would look like heroes saving Germany from this madman who was going to lead them into a destructive war that would totally mess up their country. Hmm. So their plan was to arrest Hitler. They were going to rush the chancellor, chancellor, chancellery, chancellery with 50 soldiers, some of whom were mercenaries. So this was the plan. They were just going to go and they were going to arrest him, put him in prison, take control of the government. No muss, no fuss, no problem. But then it seems like a low number. Yes, but they were going to need to, because remember, they're high level people in Nazi Germany governments. They could just walk by. Uh, most of the defenders. I mean, again, it's it's like in a spy movie where it's like, don't you know who I am? I'm the chief of staff here. Now stand aside. <laughs> but then what gets interesting is Sense. that they decided among themselves, Heinz and Oster said, they were going to do a conspiracy within a conspiracy. 
So they told what? their soldiers and they told the soldiers and their buddies they were going to arrest Hitler. They were going to put him on trial. But then they agreed between just the two of them that they were going to shoot Hitler in the process of arresting him and say it was an accident. <laughs> what? Yeah. Wow. They probably correctly asserted that he'd be too dangerous to keep alive. So, like, and for Palpatine. Mm -hmm. I mean, Stauffenberg came to the same conclusion. And, and then, in fact, he went a little bit further, but we'll talk about that when we get there. Right. So while they're doing all this, the, the winds of war are blowing. and mm -hmm. the, the, But they were right that their plan could have been successful in the sense that they were saving Germany from a war because the German people weren't enthusiastic about fighting a war at the time either. Hitler himself said, I cannot make war with such a people. <laughs> what do you think of my Hitler impression? Not bad, not bad. Okay, so Beck said through one of his said to one of his envoys, "Bring me certain proof that England will fight if Czechoslovakia is attacked, and I will put an end to this regime." Hmm. So, so this was like while Hitler was like threatening uh, Czechoslovakia, mm -hmm. but the problem was that England wouldn't do it. Chamberlain was still in power; he was willing to give away anything for peace in our time. So even though Oster and his buddies started to, had they done all this planning, they got their allies, they got their soldiers, when Chamberlain basically surrendered Czechoslovakia and the Sudan land to Hitler, they were like, crap, we can't move against Hitler now. He's more popular than ever. He just gave the most powerful country on the planet a big black eye without even needing to fight. Oof. So they never implemented that particular plot. Hmm. Okay. So after this, Oster started just giving military secrets to the Allies. So he acted as a spy for the Allies. He warned the Netherlands that they were about to be invaded by Nazi Germany. They didn't listen. Same with Norway. Same with France. Mm -hmm. hmm. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I had no idea of that. Yeah. I, I, if, you, if you succeed, you're a hero. If you fail, you become a footnote of history. Just sort of like all of all these right. guys, unfortunately. <laughs> but if you think that was interesting... Buckle up for this one. Let me tell you the story of Johann George Elser. So this is a story I've been telling friends and family ever since I read it because I quite enjoyed it and I hope you will too. So Johann All George right. Elser was from the same region of Germany as Stauffenberg. It was called Swabia, which is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> the people there are not called Swabs, though. They're called Swabians. Oh, this is funny. So, I know, right? So Elser, unlike everybody else in the movie and these stories, was an ordinary person. He wasn't a soldier. He wasn't a mm -hmm. spy. He wasn't a secret agent. He worked as a carpenter. He was an extreme introvert. Very few friends, very few people who knew him at all. While his family thought he was apolitical, there's evidence that he opposed Nazism from the beginning of the regime in 1933. He refused to perform the Hitler salute, didn't join the others in listening to speeches broadcast on the radio, didn't vote for the Third Reich's elections or referendums. He had dabbled in communist leanings, but said to his interrogators the reason why he was going to stop Hitler was the following. Here's a quote, courtesy of Nigel. And I'm not going to do an impression this time because it's too hard. <laughs> I considered how to improve the conditions of the workers and avoid a war. For this, I was not encouraged by anyone. Even from Radio Moscow, I never heard that the German government and the regime must be overthrown. I reasoned the situation in Germany could only be modified by removal of the current leadership. 
I mean Hitler, Goring, and Goebel. Goebbels. Goebbels? Goebbels? I think it's Goebbels, actually. Oh, huh. Okay. I did not want to eliminate Nazism. I was merely of the opinion that a moderation of the policy objectives will occur through the elimination of these three men. The idea of eliminating the leadership came to me in the fall of 1938. I thought to myself that this is only possible if the leadership is together at a rally. From the daily press, I gathered that the next meeting of leaders was happening on 8 and 9 November 1938 in Munich in the Burger So what was going on was that Hitler's and the Nazi party had attempted to overthrow the German government. And I believe it was 1924. I probably should have written it down. And it was called the Beer Hall Pucht. Pucht? Pucht? It's the German word for like attempted revolt or revolution. Okay. And they failed and a lot of Nazis got killed in that. Hmm. So when they succeeded every year, they would come back to the Burger Brockeller, the place where it started. Oh, I'm sorry. I haven't written down. It was 1923. Oh, okay. So they would come back to the same place every day at the same time time to commemorate those who had died and nigel gives a, a funny image of these like fat nazis trying to fit into their uniforms they wore when they were like <laughs> 15. so elser figured out i know where hitler's gonna be i know huh. when he's gonna be there and that's how i'll kill him wow well you've got you know motive and means right there mm-hmm. an opportunity really exactly so november 8th 1938 goes to Munich to check it out. So he, he figures out, he and he sees that there's a big stone pillar in the middle of the restaurant or the, or the beer hall. And he's, he comes up with his plan. He's going to build a bomb. He's going to put it in the pillar. It's going to be right next to where Hitler is going to be standing. So starting hmm. in early, so he goes back to his home city and he puts his plan together. He starts buying explosive materials, designs a bomb, tests the bomb, <laughs> makes sure that it works. So it takes him a whole year from November 1938 until August 1939. He moves back to Munich and he gets a job as a day laborer. Okay. Starting in early August 1939, every evening he would go to the Burger Brockeller, eat his dinner, blend it in. Everybody's drinking, everybody's dancing around, everybody's eating, carrying on. Nobody knows it, notices this quiet guy just sitting there eating his uh, sausage or whatever. Mm. He pays his tab. He looks like he's going to leave, but actually at 10 p.m., he would go into the back and hide in a cloakroom until everybody left. Mm-hmm. Then he would come out and start cutting a hole in the stonework of the pillar to place his bomb. Chipping out the mortar, prying bricks out of the pillar. Wow. He timed every blow of the hammer with sounds like a train going by or toilets flushing, because I guess they had automatic toilets in 1939. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And then when he was done every night, he would go and collect every bit of sawdust, every bit of brickwork, every bit of dirt to hide the evidence that he had ever been there. This sounds like the Shawshank Redemption. (laughs) Yeah, I was actually going to say before, I was actually going to say, and then he would take all that dirt and like hide it in his pants and then drop it off when him and the prisoners were uh, playing baseball. <laughs> but, yeah. but the fir- and the first thing he did was he like came up with like a cover on the pillar that he would attach to make mm-hmm. it look like, you know, so they wouldn't see a big hole in it. Uh, so then every was it a poster? It was not a poster of Rita Hayworth. Oh, I mean, it had, it had to look like the, it had to look like the pillar, which is like right, crazy. Right. Like, yeah, I didn't yeah. know how you would do I mean, that. 
that's yeah. Well, it's a good thing he was a carpenter. Yeah. You know who else was a carpenter? Are you gonna say Jesus? I mean, yeah, coincidence, <laughs> maybe. Okay, so. Anyway, he would collect all the evidence, go back to his hiding place, sometimes with a briefcase holding debris, hide there until, like, the breakfast crew came in and started eating their waffles or whatever. Then he would go mingle with them, go home, go back to sleep. And he did this from August to November, so that's, so that's three months. Jeez. So then finally, 8 November 1939, he sets his bomb 18 hours in advance, hides it in the pillar, seals it up, makes a break for the border. 18 hours pass. The Nazis do not find the bomb. Uh-huh. It goes off exactly Ooh. when it was supposed to, collapsing uh-huh. the pillar and the roof of the hall, just Ooh. like it was supposed to. But? But it, well, it didn't kill Hitler. Sorry. Okay. And the reason for that is because he wasn't standing next to it. Because if he had been, uh-huh. definitely, he absolutely would have been killed if he had been standing next to the pillar when the bomb went off. Okay, how many times did Hitler like not die because he was st- wasn't standing in just the right spot? There were at least 10 plots that failed because of basically like BS. Jeez. Well, I was going to bring this up when we were talking about the movie, but I'll bring yeah. it up now. The, the internet has a theory that the reason why all these plots fail because of ridiculous circumstances is time travelers. Or it's because Hitler has the spear of destiny. Hmm. I like that. I like that one too. I mean, that's, some... if you read the old GSA comics, like in World yeah. War II, that's why the Justice Society of America couldn't just go after Hitler directly, is because he had the Spear of Destiny. I mean, it is pretty poetic that the only thing that could kill Hitler was Hitler. Hmm. If you believe that sort of thing. Yeah. So the reason why Elser's bomb mm-hmm. didn't kill Hitler was because there was bad weather that day. Ah. Uh... And. Well, that's that's not the whole story. So there All was right. bad weather. Hitler was going to leave via an airplane, but because mm-hmm. of the weather, he decided to take his personal armored train instead. And because of that that change, his departure time was moved up by an hour, and so his address was moved up by an hour. Uh, he gave a speech at 8 p.m. when he was supposed to give it at 9 p.m. Hmm. So, the, so the result of this was Elser's bomb killed eight Nazis and a waitress, injuring oh. 63 others. 63, huh. Because by the time it went off, he had given his speech, so most people went home, except for uh. a few late, late drinkers. <laughs> if it had worked, it would have killed Hitler, many of his lieutenants, and 3,000 brown shirt supporters. 3,000, jeez. <laughs> so Nigel talks about how there's a theory that because... Elser was captured so easily, which we will get to. Some people think, some historians thought it was a conspiracy concocted by the SS or the Gestapo to try to seize power. But most historians now are like, no conspiracy would put the most important man in Germany next to a bomb and just... Yeah, no, no. (laughs) Yeah, that it went off when it was supposed to. So then at 8.45 p.m., the night of November... on that same night, so actually before his bomb went off, Elster was apprehended by two border guards 25 meters from the Swiss border fence. So when he was taken to the control post, asked to empty his pockets, he was carrying wire cutters, numerous notes, sketches pertaining to explosive devices, oh, come on. firing pins, and a blank color postcard of the interior of the Burger Brow Count. Oh, come on. It's like, are you, it's like, are you serious? Well, I mean, that's how you can tell he's not a spy, right? Yeah, that's true. 
Uh, other people he had interacted with recognized him as a purchaser of explosives and someone who went to the beer hall. Hmm. So I guess basically other know, people like fingered him. Yeah, well, I suppose in the d- days pre-internet, it would. It, well, I don't know that it's harder or easier to get things now, but it's easier to get them with anonymity. Oh uh, yeah, definitely back then it was easier to maintain your anonymity. Yeah, because there's there's a paper trail all the way down. So yeah. Elser. They tortured the shit out of him, <laughs> which is how we got the quote from before. Sorry. Uh, and he spent the rest of the war in prison. And I will tell you what ultimately happened to him next episode. Oh, so okay. Then there was another plot where they attempted to drop an anvil on Hitler's head, but it failed when he refused to step onto the giant bullseye painted on the ground. Wait, really? That was, that was a joke. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, that seems, sounds like some wily coyote. <laughs> I, I couldn't. I couldn't figure out where, where to where to work it in there. <laughs> well, you, you had me for a second until you said <laughs> until you said giant um, target painted on the ground. I was like, really? They tried it in. I mean, and I, the only reason I was half believed it is because there's all these ridiculous stories about the CAA trying to kill uh, Castro with mm-hmm. ridiculous means. So I, th- I was thinking, all right, this is another ridiculous method to try to kill a dictator. Truth can be stranger than fiction, but not that strange. (laughs) Okay, so the last thing that I have on our Microdot episode is a little bit about Klaus von Stauffenberg, Stauffenberg, excuse me, Mm -hmm. the hero of our story, played by Tom Cruise in the movie. Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned, Stauffenberg is also from Swabia, and he was a twin. Him and his brother Conrad were the second set of twins born to Countess Caroline Schink von Stauffenberg, but... Conrad died the day after he was born, uh, 15 November 1907. Hmm. So Klaus was a twin. I thought that was interesting. I'm also yeah. a twin. So Klaus was interested in being a soldier from a very young age. In 1914, according to Nigel, quote, young Klaus, just seven years old, dissolved into a flood of tears at the thought that the war, as in World War I, would almost certainly be over before he was old enough to fight in it. Wow. Good thing he wasn't an American who wanted to fight in Afghanistan because he could have grown up to fight in it. <laughs> the Stauffenbergs also lost a cousin in the Battle of Verdun. Mm-hmm. Stauffenberg joined the army on March 5th, 1926, and he stayed in it for basically the rest of his life. When the Nazis came to power, like most other officers in the Wehrmacht, Stauffenberg adopted a kind of wait-and-see approach to the new mm-hmm. government. Mm-hmm. He kind of liked that they were talking about making Germany strong again <laughs> you were almost gonna say great again weren't you no <laughs> i'll never tell but anyway stauffenberg was distracted because in september of 1933 he was 26 and he married a 17 year old girl named nina Frein von Litcherfeld. when people asked him why he chose her he said because she would make a good mother for my children <laughs> trying the german accent again yeah but like <laughs> I mean, my takeaway from that is like, wow, real, real romantic guy. (laughs) And when they got married, he was wearing his full uniform, including the now infamous Wehrmacht steel helmet. Uh, And they they have a picture of that in the the book. So Stauffenberg fought in Poland, in the USSR, and in France. hmm. He served as a logistics or administrative officer. Mm -hmm. 
And at one point, a sort of signal that he was going to become a better person, or a, a, I guess a good guy, a moral guy that we that we know him as, mm-hmm. is at one point he insisted on a court martial of a fellow officer because that fellow officer had had two Polish women shot out of hand for allegedly signaling to Polish artillery Oof. while they were fighting there. Yep. So oh, okay. I, uh, I will have more from Countdown to Valkyrie. All right. Both about what during the plot that's covered in the movie and Uh after. Ooh, okay. I'm curious about that too. Yeah. So thank you for joining us and we will see you next time. Or was there anything else we wanted to say? Mm, No, that's it. Yeah. So join us next time where we fully dive into the Brian Singer directed Tom Cruise starring movie Valkyrie. I've been Christian. And I've been Zach. And we are the Spy-Fi Guys, signing off. Thank you for listening to the Spy-Fi Guys. If you enjoyed our podcast, please be sure to give us a five-star rating on iTunes. The theme song from this podcast is Mistake the Getaway by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Films, books, and television shows reviewed by our podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This is a personal podcast. Any views, statements, or opinions expressed in this podcast are personal and belong solely to the participants. They do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the participants may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated. Any views or opinions are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, or individual. You can find our podcast on social media at The Spy Fi Guys on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.